Good morning. I wanted to do a follow-up for you of my uh, the latest stories. Um, first off, aren't y'all glad the weather is a little bit changing? I mean, it took a big old haboob to get it done, but, you know, we'll see. It, it sure was nice last night. And, you know, if you got to walk a Kellogg's mile to get to Bible study, it would be nice, that, you know, once it cools off. You're getting your steps in at the same time as you're doing Bible study. It's good for you. And you've done such a good job with parking. I don't think we're being kicked out yet. So, I know. That's good because I don't know where I'm going to take all y'all if we do. So, But I wanted to show you this picture because you know the story of um, these amazing people at uh, Christian Brothers Auto, which, by the way, is at 5400 West Happy Valley Road. Okay? And Matt and Amy right there on the right own it. And that is their entire staff and Ben and Hillary up front with their car in the back. And so that was awesome. But... But the experience of it all, like we, we went to pick it up and I'm going to tell you what, this couple blew my mind. They are the real deal. They gathered their entire staff around this car and they were telling the staff Hillary's story, how this all took place um, because they've all been working on this car and, um, you know, getting it to where it is and it, the funny thing is is they've had this car they said for the past six months and they've tried to figure out where it should go and giving it away and nothing was ever really coming to fruition and Matt said in some ways this car has been a pain to us because we could not figure out where this car belonged because they give away one to two cars a year just so you know they have a nonprofit for that and it's so interesting because my friend uh, Kathy Oliva says I know that because I donated an old car to them so they have this uh, going on I just want you to know it's part of who they are and what they're called to do and so they've had this car and they could never really find the right home for it. And so he's telling, uh, she's telling all the story of Hillary. Then he tells the story of the car and he looks right at Ben and Hillary. And he says, all this time that y'all have been going through the ups and downs of your car being stolen, trying to get it fixed, all of this, just know that God was preparing this car for you. And I'm telling you what, we were balling. I could not. And then, so he is telling his entire staff that. And then he makes the entire group of people get around that car. And every one of those people laid their hands on that car and prayed over that car. I was like, I'm moved by these people. Like, this is just unreal. Hillary was bawling. Ben was bawling. And so we took this picture, and it was the most amazing thing. So yesterday, those two little fools up front packed that thing like you've never seen. Hillary hadn't been home with the car in a while. I think she wiped me out. She went, through, she went through my old accessories. She went through my pantry. Any kind of small little things she needed for their apartment, you know, because they're newlyweds. I was like, do I have anything left in this house or did you take it all? Like, is there a comforter you're not using? Are there pillows you're not using? Candles you're not using? I mean, she packed that sucker up. So they're still driving back to Aurora as we speak. But I just wanted you to know about these amazing people if you have a car to donate that'd be the place if you want to get automotive work done that's the place and um, they're opening one at Lake Pleasant and Happy Valley Road
Um, the, the way, and I'm going to tell you, this is a whole network too, because the way Amy even came to Bible study is through my friend, Marissa Atkins, who's sitting in this room and her husband is a PA. And if you remember last year, I told the story about Hillary being deathly sick and this precious PA that saw her name on the list and rushed her in and like was her hero. That is uh, Jeff Atkins, who, by the way, if you um, he's a PA and he's going into concierge doctoring. Isn't that awesome? Right. So if you need a doctor, he will come to your home to, for an appointment. Um, there's so much good to that. I cannot even begin to tell you. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, message me and I'll give you the contact for that business. We're just a wonderful little network here today. So we can uh, take care of your, your personal body and we can take care of your auto body today uh, with these advertisements. But this was such a cool experience and I wanted you to see to the very end of it. So, And if you go in to have any car work done, just say Mary Shannon Ministries sent you because I really want them to know I'm a fan. All right. Um, anything else? Y'all did a great job parking. Um, I need to be smarter than I really am today because this is a lot of stuff. Are you ready? We might get through five verses. And just remember this, okay? I'm studying the Bible and you, get, you just get to come along. I'm going to mention things that I could stay on forever. And I personally do ponder it a lot. But I'm just wetting your whistle. You need to write down the things like come back to that, you know, or write down a note because you could meditate on this for so long. And do you remember the picture I put up last week of the lion gnawing over that bone that that's actually the picture of that Hebrew word to meditate like a dog gnaws on a bone? to get all the good stuff out. And so just remember that. I'm just going to be touching on things today, and you're not going to like everything. Sometimes I'm going to go like all psychology on you or all science on you, or sometimes I'm going to go personal or deep in this area. You don't have to like it all, but something is in there for you. Not to mention, every now and then, it's not such a bad thing when someone pushes your brain a direction you don't normally want to go. All right? And keep in mind, you have a young generation that is looking up to you and wanting to talk to you about things that they're receiving in the world from professors, from teachers, from all kinds of stuff. So you really do need to go deeper in some areas than you think you're comfortable. We can all learn. Um, and so I was listening to Jordan Peterson on the way here today. My mind is completely blown. I would love to sit down with that man. But he is so brilliant. So just know... Take what you can take and chew on that for the rest of the week. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word. To me, it is treasure. It is treasure. It, um, it does a supernatural act inside of me. It reminds me, Lord, that um, there is meaning to this life. That I have a God who created everything. And that he placed meaning into it in a narrative. And I fit into that. And I am seen and I am heard and I'm loved. And I'm a part of something bigger than me. Lord, if I did not feel that after the life I've lived, I would feel like all of this is for naught and it's emptiness. 
but it's not. Because God, you are above all of it, and you have a plan. And God, I just uh, thank you that you love me as imperfect as I am. And Lord, I thank you that you have given me a hope and a future. Um, Because sometimes, Lord, we are in a spot in life where we don't see that. And so as we study Daniel, who has been taken from his home to a land that is is not his, is not familiar in any way, and he is isolated, and he is alone, and his very identity is being attacked, and all hope seems lost. Lord, he still fixed his eyes on you, the author and perfecter of his faith. So may we learn from that. God, I pray that you would supernaturally teach, that your Holy Spirit would. I'm just a person who loves you and loves to study your word, so use me. Um, I sure love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, last time we were together, um, I almost finished the kings, but I want to I tell you two kings, okay, that I, I did not mention. Um, look at Daniel chapter 1 and tell me what king is being referred to there. Jehoiakim, right? And so Jehoiakim was the king that... Um, Babylon used as their vassal king, right? When Babylon came in and the first siege, you would say, is referred to in Daniel chapter one. In that first siege, right, Jehoiakim changed his allegiance from Egypt to Babylon. And when he did, he paid tribute and they took stuff from the treasury. They took stuff from the temple and they took the biggest, the best and the brightest of the royal family. Um, and, but that was the first, that was the first siege. And I, I want to finish it for you because I want you to see the completion of it. Okay. So Jehoiakim is where we are at the beginning, beginning of Daniel. But after Jehoiakim, uh, was the vassal king for Babylon for about three years, He did something really stupid, and he decided because Babylon went in to try to conquer all of the land of Egypt to kind of complete their empire, and when they did, they didn't get it. And so when they didn't conquer Egypt, Jehoiakim thought, oh, I'm going to... I'm going to go back to Egypt. I'm going to ally with Egypt. Well, when he did, Nebuchadnezzar came in and said, no, you don't. And he seized the city and he did it. Basically, it took him about three months and he won. And so when that happened, Jehoiakim was killed. Okay. And then his son, Jeconiah, was placed on the throne, but he only lasted for about three months because Nebuchadnezzar went, no, I don't believe I want his son. Why? Yeah, because payback, right? He's like, no, I I won't stay true. He is going to try to vindicate his father. So he takes Jeconiah off the throne and he sends him with a whole nother group of people from Jerusalem into exile into Babylon, and he puts Zedekiah on the throne. Now, keep in mind that was, uh, at this point, Daniel's about 18, uh, early 20s, and remember, he's already graduated from the school of Babylon, and he is working in the government. So he's watching all of this take place in his lifetime. 
He's hearing about what's going on at home. He was hearing about Jehoiakim and how he was brutally abusing his people at home. He has all of that word that he hears. And then Jeconiah and a whole other group of people come walking in in exile to Babylon. He's watching this whole thing. He watches as they build um, refugee cities outside of Babylon. These are all his people. All of his emotions. He's watching what's happening to his people. And who is he also remembering? The word of the prophets that have been saying all along, here are the things that are going to happen because you would not obey the law. And he is literally watching it take place before his eyes. And then Zedekiah also at one point decides he is not going to stick with Nebuchadnezzar. He's not going to remain under Babylon. And when that happens, then the big one comes. Nebuchadnezzar goes, oh, really? You know what? Jerusalem is the vein of my existence. I'm about to wipe them off the map. And he comes in and he sieges, sieges Jerusalem. But this time it takes 30 months to do it. But when he was done, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed and the temple was utterly destroyed. And so when you see lists of the things that ended up in Babylon, as far as um, the artifacts from the temple and all that, just know that accumulated over three sieges. All right. And at the end of this, they were wiped out. I wanted you to know that because do you remember the prophecies I told you because of King Hezekiah? Do you remember that? Because Hezekiah let the Babylonians in the back door to see all the stuff he had because they flattered him and he thought he was important, right? What did the prophet tell him? All that stuff you just showed them, they're going to carry off to Babylon. So guess what happened? It's exactly what happened. And then do you remember when I taught you about King Manasseh? And King Manasseh was so utterly wicked that God said uh, through the prophet, I am going to clean your plate now listen, I'm from Arkansas, I can clean a plate. I know what that means. He said, I'm going to clean a plate. I'm going to turn it upside down. There will be nothing left. Guess what just happened? That's exactly what happened. So all of these prophecies are coming true. And Daniel is watching all of this come true. And you can imagine he's have, he has hope. But every time a new caravan comes through, what is he feeling? Less hope, right? And at the end, when he hears news, how do you think he took the news that the temple was absolutely destroyed? Right? So at that point, all hope seems lost to them. And you need to remember what promises have been made. The reason I taught you in the first uh lesson, I literally taught you the promises from the beginning of the world, right, until the forming of the nation. What were the three unconditional covenants or promises I told you about? You remember? Number one was in Genesis chapter three, which is the first gospel in all of scripture. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. And it was when basically God told Adam and Eve and the enemy who was listening a redeemer is coming. Remember, it sounded like this. I will put hatred between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel. 
he will crush your head. In the middle of the punishments of how everything was broken, man was mortally wounded with sin. He tells them some good news. A redeemer is coming. A rede- this is the tale of two seeds, good and evil. And by the way, seed doesn't come from man. I mean, from woman, it comes from man, right? But it said seed of woman as the prophecy of the virgin birth. So from flesh, but divine, two seeds, someone is coming that will redeem it all, that will destroy Satan. You will hurt him, but he will destroy you. And they heard that. And Adam named his wife the mother of all living. There's hope. As long as there is life, right? Then there was hope of the coming redeemer. And so that was the first promise. The redeemer is coming. Then do you remember the second? It narrows in. Abraham, right? The covenant of Abraham. So he says to Abraham, when he picks Abraham to become a nation, his nation, he says, I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all nations will be blessed through you. There was a principle there, remember? God blesses us to be a blessing, period. But it's more than that. He is blessing the nation of Israel and keeping them whole because a blessing will come out of them that will be a blessing to all people. And that blessing was Jesus because salvation would come to all nations. So we've heard a redeemer is coming. We've heard that that redeemer is going to come through the line of Abraham, that he is going to be basically Jewish, right, from that nation. And then later, when I talk to you about the United Kingdom or the kings, we see something even more, that not only is he going to come from Abraham, but narrow down, he's going to come from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, all right? And that God promised that someone from the line of David would be an eternal king, we know that is Jesus. This is what Daniel knew. This is what he believed, the promises of God. But right now, it looks incredibly what? Bleak. Because there is barely a remnant left of the Jewish people. They are no longer in their land. The royal line at this point has been decimated, right? And so it's not looking too good. Now, I also want you to realize where the law fits in, right? So God had made three promises, unconditional promises. Didn't matter what anybody else did. He obligated himself, period, to fulfill those promises. But the tool he used to watch over this nation was the law. And the law was not an unconditional covenant. It was a conditional covenant. I've described it to you very often as a marriage contract, right? You're familiar with that? He said, love me and only me. Get rid of all your boyfriend's pictures. No images, no idols. (laughs) Honor my name because you're going to bear it. Uh, Make me the most important thing in your life. Give me a date day every week. Honor the Sabbath. Um, And if you're going to be with me in covenant, then be like me. What am I like? Well, here are the scales, the the rules of music. You're not making music yet. You're learning the scales, right? He's showing you the simplicity, basically, of who he is and who we were designed to be. These things produce life. Thou shalt not murder. 
I'm a God of life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I keep my promises. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not... All of those things. If you want to be with me, be like me. These are the things that bring life. And they said, yes, we will. And so it reminds me, what you need to realize is if you've ever been a teacher, all right, any teachers here? Raise your hand if you've been a teacher. One of the things we do is we set up a culture in our room. And we have classroom rules. Do you remember that? Are your kids ever talk about that? That first day, man, we lay them down. All right, I taught high school. Okay, one of my first things is, listen, my kids don't sass me and you won't sass me either and live, right? <laughs> it seems really harsh, right? But let me tell you something. You can't learn anything in chaos. And so if you are a good teacher, you set up good classroom rules and they are very few because you're serious about those things. And you set up those rules because you want a culture that brings life and knowledge and maturity. That's what you're trying to do. And this is what the guardrails of the law was. He was trying to make them understand who he is and what actually what we were created to be like. These are the things that produce life, not death. And so he was creating that culture for them so that they could thrive. But what happens when our kids get older? Right? Guardrails are going to be removed. Bottom line. So can I suggest, by the way, that you remove some while you still have them? Because if you literally, listen, there's a difference between um, religious reformation and true spiritual revival. Reformation is nothing but behavior modification. Okay? Now, the law was a part of that because they knew that the law came with blessings and curses. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you do this, there will be a curse. Is that not school rules? Classroom rules? If you do this, you will be rewarded. If you do this, then there's going to be discipline. Why? Because children need that. They need guardrails and they need discipline and it needs to be according to what they've done and it needs to be swift so that they learn. It needs to be consistent or don't even make a rule. But seriously, if you're not going to be consistent with it, don't make the rule. Evaluate the rule. If it's, if it's not that important. And so he said in Leviticus, these rules are going to come with blessings and they're going to come with curses because this covenant you agreed to. You signed your name. This is a contract. But the point is, is that what he's truly after is spiritual revival, which is not behavior modification. It is a permanent change of the heart. So when we're raising kids or teaching kids, we are teaching them things before it becomes real to them, but we're hoping at some point when we teach it and we model it, they will see it and their heart, they will be uh, transformed into that. Okay? I want you to see this in scripture. Look at Galatians 3.24. I'm going to read 23 too. 
it says this, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian. Does anybody have schoolmaster as, as one? Yeah. So you get that? The law was our schoolmaster. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. The point being, right, we have those guardrails to our young children because they need it until it becomes their own. And what happens is he didn't just want behavior modification, right? What he truly wants is a heart change. And so this is what, when you look at Ezekiel, so God came preaching this new relationship that was going to come by faith because he was going to fulfill the law. And by faith, he was going to live out those things in front of us. And when we put our faith in him, something new happens inside of us. Look at Ezekiel 36, 26, and 24. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Do you see Ezekiel the prophet is foretelling about this mystery that is to come, this kind of relationship. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 7. And he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. That's what happens. Because of Jesus and what he did on the cross and he paid our debt, when we put our faith in him. What happens is we receive a, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, that turns our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. In other words, he writes the laws on our heart. And we're no longer over here practicing scales. All of a sudden, we get to play music. Because that music is coming out of our changed heart. And that is what, I love Proverbs 4.23. Look at that. This is a key. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. Everything we are comes out of the motivation of our heart. And so that is what he's after. He has made three promises thus far about a coming redeemer. And I'm going to tell you what, those are unconditional. It's happening. He will bring the Redeemer. But he used a conditional contract, a conditional covenant to put guardrails on the nation of Israel so that he, because that is the best place for them and to hold them in protection because the Redeemer was going to come out and he is going to bring about his promises and still let the free will of man reign. 
And because of that, he is going to be swift when they disobey. He's going to be swift with judgment so that they learn and he can bring them back and he parents them. He parents them. But one day, he is going to bring a new relationship that will change the heart and it will be a motivation out of the heart. But I want you to understand that in the Old Testament where we are now, they still remain with the guardrails. Okay? So don't make our Christian faith legalistic by studying the Old Testament because you need to understand that that law was given as a schoolmaster over them because he had a promise to fulfill out of the Jewish nation. But don't make our new covenant relationship with Jesus so legalistic that you make it into an equation, if I do this, then I will be blessed. If I don't do this, I will be cursed. Because what we start to do when we look at that is we turn our one living, wonderful God almost into the God of the pagans, where you feel like you have to appease him or you're going to get demolished. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're still under the school master. Now, look at verse 1 of Daniel. You're like, praise the Lord. <laughs> Don't rush me. We'll get through Daniel in three years. It's not a big deal. <laughs> in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and seized it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, which is synonymous with Babylon, to the house of his God. I love the fact that in verse 1, Daniel simply tells what happened in history, what the reality of the human eye could see. Nebuchadnezzar had power and Judah did not. Do you find it interesting that one thing he did not do is he did not go back through past history like I've done for four lessons so that you can understand all of this because I want to be able to point back, okay? All of that was in Daniel. It was his history, but he doesn't go back there. He starts from the present situation. This is what's happening right now, and this is where we're headed. I wonder how many of us just constantly live in the past, right? Listen, it's good to look back at the past and learn, but at some point, you got to look right here, right now, and where are we going from here? We can't constantly stay in the past. I would die there because here's the thing. Time only goes one way, people. It doesn't go backwards. So what are you going to do from here? I love the fact that we have self-awareness and we need to learn from where we've been and we need to quit saying, God, you know, why am I going through this? And just say, God, what do I get out of this? What do you want me to get out of this, right? And move forward. So we have to look back to learn, but we, we can't live there because living in the past is depression, Living in the future is anxiety. So at some point, you have to live in this present. And right now, Daniel is saying, as of present, it ain't looking too hot. Because it looks like, right, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, has all the power. He doesn't write chapters of laments, does he? 
I mean, do you understand what's happened to this boy? We're going to see he's about 15 years old. He just got taken captive with his friends. I'm sure he had dreams. And he was shipped off to Babylon, never to see, as far as we know, his family or parents ever again at 15 years old, to a culture that is nothing like his, nothing. Nothing is familiar. I am a homesick chick when I was young. I think about Zach. Oh my gosh, he couldn't spend the night with anybody ever. 15 years old. And he gets shipped off. And we don't hear poor me or why me or laments, any of that. Maybe he did all that on the three-month journey there and he got it out of his system. But at this point, he looks at what is ahead of him. And he deals with it. He's a part of it. He's an influence. It establishes the overall theme of this book. Despite appearance, God is in control. Why? Look at verse 2. It's like he pulls back the curtain in one phrase giving us the reality behind the appearance. Look at verse two, what does it say? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And I love the fact that that Lord right there, um, do you see that it is a capital L and little O-R-D? Okay, when you see that, that's the interpretation Adonai. All right, and Adonai emphasizes God as master, his ownership, his control. So the actual language is showing us that. It appears that Nebuchadnezzar is in control by everything we can see, that Babylon is in control. But what Daniel is saying to you is what? Don't let your eyes deceive you. God is in control. He has allowed this to happen. And I think it made sense because Daniel knew the prophets. And literally from Leviticus to Isaiah, many of these I read to you in the past three, some of them in the past three lessons. Leviticus, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, all of them warned Judah what would happen if they broke the classroom rules. Right? If they began to worship the gods of the other people, and, and with that brought all kinds of sin and violence and immorality and crime. And he's like, if you don't shape up, I'm going to ship you out. And he has been warning that. So the recognition of that, although it seems depressing that they're being judged, right? In some ways, do you understand that that's hopeful to Daniel and them? Because if God is doing what he said and allowing them to be judged, then God is still in control. And if he is in control, then the other part of what he said, which is you will be beaten down for a time, but I will be with you there and I will bring you out. Right? And so... We are very careful that what we see today, and, and come on, if you look around today, you want to say, who is in control? What in the world? I mean, but what do we know? God rules the kingdoms of men. Daniel tells us that. He is in control. It may seem by the eye that he is not, but the fact is, he is. And Daniel knew this. The one who sent them off into exile would be with them and would ultimately restore them. You can find that in Jeremiah 46. But isn't this a theme that runs through the whole Old Testament? 
you see this exact same thing happen with Jacob. Do you remember Jacob? Abraham. What's next? Isaac. <laughs> Come on. And Jacob. All right. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had twins. Do you remember this? Jacob and Esau. And before they were even born, God in his sovereign will chose Jacob to be the recipient of the promise of that coming redeemer. It would be Jacob's line. Okay, that's happening. God chose that. But he did not overcome Jacob's free will. See, how does God do this? He made us in his image. We have free will. He did not take it back. Somehow God brings redemption and restoration and he does it while still operating with our nonsense and our free will. And so the fact is, oh, it was coming through Jacob. Jacob was the promised one, but Jacob was a mess. Jacob's name means trickster, con man, he who grabs the heel, right? And so you watch Jacob as he tries to deceive and grab something he's already got, right? But he does it. And when he does, guess what? God allows consequence to come. And what happens? Well, because he basically stole the birthright and the blessing, his older brother Esau wants to kill him, so what does he have to do? He has to flee all by himself. And this is the dude that liked to stay home. All right, he wasn't the mighty hunter camper. That's Esau, the hairy one. Jacob liked to be around the house. He liked to do more civilized things. And he finds himself out in the wilderness by himself uh, with his head on a stone as a pillow, taking a long sleep. And when he does, he sees the picture of this ladder, right, with the angels coming up and down and the Lord at the top. And basically, God reaffirms the covenant with him and says, you're going to be exiled, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you there. And one day, you will return to this land. Is that not the same story? Do you not love that? I don't know about you, but I think at times we all get exiled, either from your choice or somebody else's stupid choice. We go through times where we definitely feel like we've been exiled. But God says, you know what? Or we have to endure the consequences of our choices. But the good thing about that is, is God the Father, He sees that. He doesn't stop using us. We don't get forfeited, so now we're no longer in the plan. We no longer have a purpose. We screwed up. We get kicked out. Is that how you treat your kids? No. He says, okay, I'm going to go to exile with you. I'm going to be there with you the entire time. And guess what? I'm going to restore you. Do you know how many do-overs we get to get back in there? I used to say to my, I mean, honestly, if you ground your kids, you're grounded too. If you're a good parent, is that not true? Do you stop being with them and teaching them because that consequences came with their free will? No. I'm there with them. You're with them. And I'm going to tell you, if you're a good parent and you love your kids, whatever they're going through, so are you. It's so not fair. I mean, honestly, nobody ever told me that beforehand, that I was going to hurt for my own stuff, and then I'm going to hurt on top of that for theirs, you know? And you're like, oh, just give it all to me. But that's the case. And he is saying, yes, your free will, 
got you to where you are. Despite the fact that I warned you and warned you and warned you through the prophets. But the fact is, you're mine because I've chosen you and I've put my name on you because a redeemer is coming so that I can redeem all you fools because I love you. And I am going to watch after you. And when you get sent in exile, I'm going with you. And even if it's the smallest remnant, I'm going with you. And I'm going to be there with you. And that is who our God is. And then it says that he took some of the articles. It says that, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels from the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. So he took some of the articles from the temple, um, this first siege, right? Eventually he takes a whole lot. But he takes these articles and he places him, them in the temple of his God. Articles literally mean smaller items. They're the smaller items from the temple, like pots and shovels and meat forks. And we know eventually there were goblets. How do we know that if you know Daniel? Because the king that took over after uh, Nebuchadnezzar, that Belshazzar, uh, he was having a big old party one night and he decided, you know, he would enjoy that kegger with the uh, goblets of from the temple. Not a good idea. Okay, at that point, a hand shows up and starts writing on the wall talking about his destruction. And guess who comes in and reads the handwriting? Daniel. So you have this, this coming together of the articles of the temple and Daniel, because I want you to understand they are synonymous. Think about it. I'll get back to that. This was a common Near Eastern practice. A victorious army would plunder the temple of the vanquished nation and place the symbols of the defeated God in their temple. We've seen this before. If you were here when I taught about David, that whole situation, do you remember? Um, under uh, Samuel, they had the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember this? Yes. And Samuel, uh, um, Eli, the high priest, man, I had to go through the Rolodex right then. Eli, the high priest, right, had allowed the priesthood to become corrupt with his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Do you remember them? They were bad. They would literally go into your house and as you were, uh, you know, preparing for sacrifice and take a three-pronged fork and put it in and take it all for themselves. They were sleeping with women in the, in the tabernacle. I mean, it was bad. Okay. And Eli was not doing anything about it and God had warned them. And so they go off to war to fight the Philistines and they're uh, losing and they think, oh, I know we're losing because we didn't take God with us like he's in a box. And so they go back. Remember, the living God set above the Ark of the Covenant. He's living. He ain't in the box. He's above the box. He's looking in the box because what's in the box? The marriage contract. And so he's reminded that he has married himself to these people. And they're breaking the contract. And what is on top of the sea? The blood of the sacrificial lamb, which is covering up that wrath. But he's alive. He's dwelling with them. But they decide they're losing because they didn't take God into battle. So they go and they get the ark and carry it into battle to battle the Philistines like he's in the box. Just like the pagan ones carry their gods in their pockets because it's like superstition. So they go out. They lose. Duh. Because they aren't following the one true God. 
And so the Philistines steal the ark. Do you remember this? They literally steal the seat of God and they take it to their cities and they put it in their temple in front of Dagon. Why? Because this is what Near Eastern people did. Because if you won, it meant your God was more powerful than their God. This is what they did. And so they put the ark down and the next morning they came in and Dagon was on his face. Hmm. If you read the story, so they set him back up. You got to set your God back up. You need to evaluate your God, but whatever. Okay, so they set the God back up. Then the next day they come in and Dagon has fallen down and now his head has broken off in his hands, right? No will, no power. God is powerful. I will not share my glory with another. And so the Phil, oh, and don't forget that the Philistines break out with tumors of the groin. What's that? <laughs> hemorrhoids? I mean, what is that? And if you have hemorrhoids, you ain't fighting in no war. Let me just tell you right now. Okay? And so they decide, okay, we need to send the ark somewhere else. This is not working out for us. So they start to send the ark to the different cities in the, the Philistine cities, and every city gets struck with what? Tumors of the groin. And so all the leaders get together and they're like, uh, we got to do something about this. We got to get rid of this ark. I think their God wants his seat back. <laughs> so they come up with a plan. They put it on a new cart. They put gifts there and they make um, <laughs> golden images of their tumors. I don't know what that looked like, <laughs> but they know that the God of Israel likes sacrifices and gifts, and so they're going to give it to them. And they put it on art. They get a, a mama cow that has just birthed a calf, two of them, and they put the calves in a cage, and they hook the mama cows up, and they say, if those cows leave their babies on their own, God wants his seat back. That's exactly what happened. Those mama cows marched away from their crying babies and they took the Ark of the Covenant back to the people of Israel to a place called Bet Shemesh, which was a priestly village. And if anybody knew how to handle the Ark, it was them and they failed. And because they did, they also were struck with illness. And so they sent the Ark away. Everybody trying to maneuver God. This is exactly what is happening here is they, uh, Nebuchadnezzar thinks his God has one. And so he takes these, these articles and he places them in the temple of his gods. Hmm. Being the advisor in the palace, I wonder if Daniel and his friends ever got to see them. I wonder if they ever were able to go in and see these little articles, a lot of which was made out of gold and glitter, and it represents the priceless value of a supreme God. Um, they were made, handcrafted by people who loved God. I wonder if they went in to see these things because in many ways they were these things. Do you see that? Little remnants of the temple and the glory of God were taken into Babylon and little remnants of the people that represented the glory of God were taken into Babylon. They were very symbolic of each other, that they were there to glorify God. And it tells you that something bad has occurred because now those things 
have been taken from their place and dispersed into exile. It tells you a catastrophic event has occurred. But those little artifacts, they were important to Daniel and his friends. Because when they looked at them, that physical thing represented a relationship with a living God. We can relate to that a little bit, right? Zach's birthday, I went and sat at his place. You know, my son's not there. But it's a, it's a physical place. It's a place that you can go that just reminds you of a life that is still alive. But I can't be with, but it reminds me of that. It can let me focus on that. And I'm going to tell you, I think when they looked at it, they realized the catastrophe of what had happened in their nation. And when I look at it, I look at the catastrophe of death. What sin has caused. Sin has caused death. And so you sit there and it is a reminder of that, of how everything was broken and was never God's intention at all. We broke it. We were mortally broken. But I also have what they have, and that I have the promise of hope. Because Daniel and his friends knew that they were the remnant in exile, and there were artifacts, and there were physical things from the temple of God, and they had been taken into exile. But God said, I will be with you there, and God's with me now. But one day, I'm going re- to redeem it. I'm going to restore it. And you will come back, and once again, life will flourish. And I have that same hope as well. That one day, we will be reunited and death will be no more. It's still the same. But we have to be very careful because very often, God is so immense and awesome and we can't comprehend him. So he gives us physical things to remember and to relate to him. But what we have a tendency to do is what? Instead of worshiping God with those things, we worship those things. And by the way, they don't have to be a physical thing. They can be a tradition in your church. That we worship the tradition of that. And we don't want to consider any other way or no, this is it. And we hang on to that tradition. and, And by doing that, we in no way represent the glory of a loving God. Because we're holding on to that. That is our sacred cow right there. And so I think we have to be careful of that. So Nebuchadnezzar has placed the things of God along with his other booty from vassal states, making God relative, placing him on the same level as cultural symbols of other gods. Let me give you the definition of relative, relative value. It's a method of determining an asset's worth that takes into account the value of similar assets. In contrast, absolute value means when it's, uh, which looks only at the asset's intrinsic value and does not compare to other assets. He literally made the living God of Israel relative. He lined him up 
with all the other trinkets of all the other God, and he made him relative according to all those other gods. And I'm going to tell you what, God is not relative. He is absolute. There is no one like him. That is the whole premise of what we believe. In Deuteronomy 6, he tells his people, Hear, O Israel, hear, the Lord your God is one. But we see that today, don't we? How often do we hear people say, well, Jesus is another prophet. He is another teacher. The other day, Mark Moore did an amazing job <clears throat> at CCV when he listed where um, many people say that Christianity is like every other religion. We make it relative. We line it up with all the other gods. And he was so good the way he put it into bullet points. He says, he used different examples. He says, Muslims... Their whole premise is what you do for God makes you acceptable. It's what you do for God. The Jewish culture, it was what you do for God, because that got mixed up with the law, right? What you do for God and family. And then he says, and Hinduism, which is the whole reincarnation thing, that you just get reincarnated until you work your crap out and then you get to go to nothingness. Okay, congratulations. We made it to nothingness. Uh, that's all about what you do about yourself, what you do for yourself. But Christianity is completely different. It's what was done for you. And I'm always telling young people that don't, don't make it relative. It's not the same. So you might as well just deny it completely. Because it is not the same. It's completely different. Every other religion in the world will teach you that God is on some high place and man is trying to make his way to God by living according to whatever code that religion aspires to. And at some point, we are working our way to appease God, to make our way to God, but yet we actually never know how far we get or what even the standard is. But that's what we do to appease him. Christianity says this, it is impossible. You can't make your way to God. It is a divide that cannot be crossed. You're dead in sin. I am spirit. You are dead in spirit. Something has to happen from death to life. And a dead person can't be undead unless somebody brings them to life. And so what he has seen is you cannot. So therefore, what happened with us? God came down off the mountain. We didn't get to God. God came to us. And he put on flesh. And he showed us who he was. He abided by the law because that's his nature. That's who he was. He submitted the flesh to the nature of God and he died and he paid our penalty. And when he did and we put our faith in him, we are once again made alive in the spirit and we can be united with God. It is not about what we do for God. It's about what he did for us. And at that point, we are given a new heart. And at that point, it is the love of God that motivates man to repentance. It's his kindness that motivates the life change. Listen, fear, it'll get you down the aisle. Trust me. I've been down the aisle out of fear. God hates sin. I'm like, okay. 
you know, hellfire and brimstone, I'm down. I'm down there. I wanted fire insurance. Great. That's awesome. But it will not keep you in a relationship. Love will. And that's what it, people experienced in the Gospels with Jesus, is a love that blew their mind, gave them a new heart, and motivated them to look different and to be able to give that to other people. Not a list of rules, for sure. So, they start. I'm going to read you some scripture, and I'm going to talk a little. No, I'm not. Hold on. I'll give you a little teaser, okay? I'll read the scripture, and I'll give you a teaser. So you come back, because this is so good, this next part. Then the king commanded Eshpenah, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom and endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. We're going to dissect all of that, but I'm going to begin with the changing of their names. That's one of the first things they did when they got there. And I want to give you this teaser. Okay, the ability to name things shows who has the power. The ability to name things shows who has the power. In particular, it shows who has the power over an individual's identity. For example, God named Adam. Adam named what? The animals. Okay. God named, and in that chapter, Adam is mankind, okay? So we're looking that God named Adam mankind, okay, in that chapter, because it's not until later we see that man was split, right? So mankind, and mankind named the animals. I used to tell my kids all the time, he who names is boss. You get it? I named you, I'm your boss. That's how it happens. And I love the fact, um, well, just let me say, we've been doing this throughout all of history. Do not think that the Babylonians are some mean group of people that did something so horrible. We've been doing this too. We did this to the Native Americans. Look it up. Okay, because one of the ways that you conquer a nation is forced assimilation. And what we did is the exact same thing. We took away their culture, we dressed them like us, we educated them like us, and we gave them new names. We have been doing it with slaves. We did it with slaves coming over. I'm going to read you an article that isn't even spiritual. Okay, about slavery and the fact that part of giving them new names was erasing their former identity and we were having power over them. 
And this is what Babylon was doing, is they were going to, instead of just annihilate all the potential of that country, they were going to assimilate them in. And one of the ways they were going to do that is by erasing their identity. And their identity, when we look at their names, are grounded in their God. So if you miss next week, don't, okay? Because we're going to talk about that identity of who we are and what their names meant. And a lot of us, let me say, have been given names by this world that are not who we are. And we're believing that junk. All right? And so we'll come back next week. Lord, thank you so much for today. Ooh, your Bible is so good. Ain't nothing new under the sun. Lord, it relates to us. You're alive. You're involved in us. We're a part of the same narrative. Our life's just not written down in this black and white book, but we're a part of it. Human beings are the same. We go through the same cycles. We have a propensity to want to be our own God. But God, I thank you for your loving kindness. I thank you that you're abounding in mercy. You're slow to anger. I thank you, God, that you desire a relationship with stiff-necked people like me. And so, God, I pray that I would always be focused on what you have done for me and who you are. And that would motivate me to love people the way you love people and to see them the way that you see them and to live out a life that represents your name and glorifies who you are. And uh, I just pray that we would all be that. And if we would that really would bring the kingdom of heaven to earth because we would be living as if we were already there and people would see it. So God be with us as we go out, we love people, we impact the world. Keep our face in the book so that we can be focused on you and the fact that we are exiles. This isn't our home. I can't wait to get home. And so God, I love you and I thank you for this opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Not an announcement, just a thank you. Uh, I've every week that you've been here, I've been going before, during, and after to our neighbors, uh, making sure that they're being taken care of and that kind of stuff. And you guys did an outstanding job. All of our neighbors were very complimentary about how you handle the parking and and the honoring that you're doing to them and to their clients. And so, thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it, and they do too. So.